this is our fifth podcast and we hope you will enjoy this and we hope you're getting an idea of what is contained in the 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. It's like being on a flat plane and looking out across the horizon and seeing a great mountain range. You begin to notice all the majestic uh, hills that are reaching up to the skies and you notice that there are probably some of the peaks that are higher than others and those instantly grab our attention. Well, there are eight peaks in the mountain range of the book of Genesis that grab our attention and kind of let us know what's going on throughout the entire 50 chapters. Now, the first four major peaks of Genesis is about four great events. We've already seen the first three, uh, creation, the uh, fall of man where Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word. Then we saw where the flood of Noah, where God wiped out the whole earth and started over again with uh, the new creation after Noah. And now we come to the fourth one, which is the rebellion at Babel. Now, uh, the Austinian monk, Thomas Alkempis, has said this, man does what he can, but God does what he wills. Solomon said it like this, best in the book of Proverbs, there are many plans in a man's heart, nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. And there are a few stories in all of the Bible that illustrate this truth better than the rebellion that happens at Babel. When you read about this narrative story, then you see the gene genealogies that follow. Immediately your impression is this, that God is working in his world and is accomplishing his purposes in spite of the plans and the projects of sinful people. Matter of fact, the theme that I think that we see through this is that when man is at his worst, we see God at his best. Now Genesis 1 through 11 reveals that mankind continually just disobeys God and the Lord judges sin and then in his grace makes a brand new beginning. Cain killed Abel, but God sent Seth for Adam and Eve to carry on that promised seed that Messiah would come through in that godly line. And then Seth's descendants, Satan tried to work through them to get them to be disqualified for Messiah to come in this world so that we'd be lost and helpless. And uh, what he tried to do was get Seth's godly line of descendants to intermarry with the descendants of Cain. And that's when God wiped, off the, uh, wiped the face of the earth clean with the flood. And after the flood, God used Noah's three sons to repopulate the earth. But this new beginning uh, brought about one of the most arrogant revolts against God ever recorded anywhere in Scripture. So when we get to chapter 10 of Genesis, we see where God stops a revolt. We see the rebellion in verses 1 through 4. The scripture tells us this, the whole earth had one language and with the same words. And the people migrated from the east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that will its top reach into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now this is directly opposed to the command that God gave Noah and his sons as they came off the, earth, uh, off the ark. God told them to be fruitful, to multiply, and to scatter across the face of the earth. But now they've decided to gather together in one city and build that city, and that was the city of Babylon. This was blatant rebellion against God's command. Now, the tower they wanted to build was primarily for religious purposes, and at the top of that tower would be a shrine that was dedicated to a god or goddess. 
You know, a lot of people have misunderstood this passage and said they were trying to build uh, a stairway to heaven. Uh, that wasn't what they were trying to do. They weren't trying in any way to go and dethrone God. They were hoping that in their efforts of doing the very best that they could, that some god or goddess would look down upon them and come down to meet with them at the place that they had created for them. As a matter of fact, the name Babel means the gate of the gods. And this infamous project was an arrogant declaration of war against God, the Lord God Almighty. And they were resisting God's edict to scatter and to repopulate the earth. Now, they were motivated perhaps by both fear because they didn't want to be alone and they wanted to congregate together, and by pride, they wanted to make a name for themselves, so they decided to build this great city and this religious temple. The only thing missing in their great plans was the approval of God. So that was the rebellion, and then in verses 5 through 9, we see God's response. The Bible says that the Lord came down to see the tower and the city which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they have proposed to do will now be impossible for them. Verse 7 says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not be able to understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So as we see from Babel to Belshazzar in Daniel 5, from uh, Herod to Hitler, history has always demonstrated that it doesn't pay to rebel against God's will. Jesus even warned us that those who exalt themselves will be humbled in Matthew chapter 23. God in heaven is never perplexed nor paralyzed by what we as people do here on earth. Uh, Babel's conceded, let's go up, was answered by heaven's calm, let's go down. And God, as he says it came down, it wasn't that he was coming down to investigate what was going on because he didn't have an idea or a clue. Uh, he came down so that his will would not be thwarted. And the language that's used there is just to dramatize God's intervention in the activity of man. The judgment, just like the one in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, not only was about the immediate sins, but it also worked to prevent future problems. By confusing their languages and scattering them over all the earth, God was graciously sparing their lives to give them an opportunity to return to him. They could have, he just could have come down and destroyed all the people, the, the builders, the city, the tower. But God chose to let them live. Now the word Babel sounds like the Hebrew word Belel, which means confusion. And God's judgment made what man was trying to build, the gate of the gods, and it became the door of confusion. Instead of making a name for themselves, God gave the project a new name. Now, we guys must remember that God is not the author of confusion in the church, as 1 Corinthians tells us. Uh, but in the world, God sometimes will use confusion to humble people and to keep them from uniting against his will. These people of this world, of that world there, building the tower, the city of uh, Babylon, they relied on their own wisdom and their own effort. Yet they failed 
to achieve the lasting fame they so desperately desired. Do you know of the name of any one of the people who worked on the famous Tower of Babel? No, you don't. But what God is getting ready to do, even when mankind is acting at their worst, God is getting ready to call out a man. And his name would become famous, not because of what he did, but because of what God was going to do through him. His name was Abram, that God later changed his name to Abraham. And Abraham today is honored and revered all over the world by Jews, by Muslims, and Christians alike. So there is a vast difference between mankind's, we will make a name for ourselves, and God, when he says, I will make your name great. There are very few people today that think of the term uh, Babel as the confusion, uh, as, excuse me, as the gate of the gods. Most of us think it, of it being confusion. Now that's the rebellion and God's response. But this isn't just an ancient history book for us to read. As we read these stories, we're supposed to be able to see ourselves in the pages of Scripture, and there's a reply that we should have of what we just have uh, studied and read about from the pages of the Bible. You see, Babel and Babylon aren't just ancient history. I mean, they are a spiritual challenge to every believer on the face of the earth today because Babylon did become a great city, and not only a city, but a great empire. And around 600 B.C., they attacked and captured Judah, the people of God, burning down the temple, breaking down the walls, and taking thousands of Jews captive to Babylon for 70 years. And God used this cruel and idolatrous nation to chastise his own disobedient people. And in Scripture, Babylon symbolizes uh, worldly pride, uh, moral corruption, and defiance against God. The biblical contrast is here. We see the earthly city of Babylon that wants to make a name for themselves and an empire for themselves that rebels against God and against the heavenly city of Jerusalem that brings glory to God. Babylon is the world's system that opposes God, hates Jesus Christ, and appeals to the basic appetites of human nature. Every generation builds its own uh, towers. I mean, it's interesting as we look across the world today, we see skyscrapers like the Tower of the United Arab Emirates. We see the Shanghai Tower in China. We see the World Tower in uh, South Korea. And we see the One World Trade Center in New York City. Or we look at not only the skyscrapers, but we see the mega corporations that circle our globes. The idea is all the same. People on this earth want to make a name for themselves. God's people can't escape being in the world, and our ministry is to the world. But we must avoid being of the world. We aren't here to build arrogant towers for mankind. We're here to help enlarge the kingdom of God by proclaiming the holy and precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And what humanity can't achieve by building its giant towers and skyscrapers, Jesus Christ achieved by simply humbling himself and being obedient to the will of his Father in heaven by dying on the cross. And all who trust in him will share heaven together regardless of race, nation, language, or tribe. That's what Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 promises us. In one sense, Pentecost was a reversal of Babel for the people present in Jerusalem heard the praises of God in their own language. And the day would come when 
people from every tribe and tongue and nation will worship Jesus Christ and the judgment of Babel will be done away with forever. But each person must make their own choice. Will you identify with Babylon and want to make your name great here on earth? Or will you identify with Jerusalem, the heavenly, the eternal city? You see, Babylon is the world's prostitute and Jerusalem is the heavenly bride that we can be a part of. So we see how God stops a rebellion, but as we uh, look further, we see how God is going to sustain a family. In Genesis chapter 5, we saw the genealogy of Adam to Noah. Now in Genesis chapter 11, it goes from Noah's son Shem all the way to Abraham. An interesting comparison, and look at this, we see that there are 10 generations uh, that are listed in both of them. Uh, but the generations in chapter 11 the men don't live as long as they did in Genesis chapter 5. The post-flood generations are starting to feel some of the physical consequences of sin in the human body. But the genealogy that is there, it records the faithfulness of God in watching over his people and fulfilling his promise. What to us is only a list of names, and they're very difficult names for us to be able to comprehend in this time, but it's not just a list of names to God. To God, it's that bridge from the appointment of Seth that God had given and appointed to Adam and Eve that said one day uh, this seed of woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. He had to work that plan out, and he worked it from Seth, and now we're going to see it through the call of Abraham. God has designed to use us as people to accomplish his will here on earth, but we as people were fragile and we're not always obedient to the Father. But the bridge was built and the covenant promises were sustained. And then as we see the last of this chapter, we see where God starts the nation. And it starts talking about the generations of Terah and how Terah was the father to Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then how God uh, you worked in terror, the father's life, to start moving and coming out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he was going to go to the promised land, but he stopped. He stopped at a place called Haran, and there he died. And that's when Abram uh, was called out, and he began to lead the family and to go on uh, to where God was going to work out his promises for all of mankind. So in Genesis chapter 1 through 11, it's a record of these four great events uh, but now we're going to move into chapter 12 as we make our ne next podcast. And we're going to move from looking at four great events to four great men. And these are really just the patriarchs of our faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But in this little section, in this paragraph, there are five people that stand out. Abraham and Sarah, Abram's father Terah, and Abram's brothers Nahor and Haran. Now Haran died, uh, but his son Lot went on with Abram. And God's purpose was to call the man and his wife, Abram and Sarah, and to use them to build this family. And from that family, God was going to build a nation. And from that nation, God was going to bless the entire world, all of the generations that would ever exist on the face of this earth. So as we see from start to finish, it's God's work of grace. Because when he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he was a family that belonged to uh, a group that worshiped idols. And according to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, God had appeared to Abram and called him to go to the land that he would show him. Uh, now, as we said, his brother Haran died in Ur. Nahor, his brother, and his wife, Milcah, they didn't go. So Nahor was the man who stayed. Abram's father, Terah, 
I was with the family, and he led them along their way in their travels, going some 500 miles, but settling down there in that city, and he died there. So Terah was the man who stopped. But Abraham and Sarah, they continued to follow God without any of their family, except for, that is, his nephew Lot, the son of Haran, his brother who died back in Ur. And Lot, eventually, as we're going to see later in the book of Genesis, He's the man who stayed because he left, uh, he's the man who strayed because he left Abram and went to the wicked city of Sodom. And the Bible tells us that he first went close to Sodom, then he moved into the gates, then he moved into the city and became one of the leading men in that uh, wicked city. Now, Abraham and Sarah are the least likely candidates that God could have chosen to build a family that would become a great nation because they were old. They were 70, Abraham was 75 when God called him out, and they were still childless. But you know what? As the prophet Isaiah says, God's ways are not our ways. And by calling this older couple, that was childless. God was revealing the greatness of his power and glory. Because you see, in using Abram and Sarah, it wouldn't be something that everybody would look and say, oh, look at what Abram and Sarah did, how great they are. People had to look at that and say, look what God did. He took an ordinary couple that was just living their life and not even enjoying some of the natural fun things of life, like having children. God took that couple that was barren, and from there, he made that great nation through which Messiah came. But as we're bringing this down to the end of Genesis chapter 11, contrast man's way at Babel and God's way in calling Abraham and Sarah. The world depends upon large numbers. We always want to get in a crowd. We feel much more comfortable if we're going with the flow of what the world accepts. We want to be in, in not just a crowd, but a, uh, we want to be involved with a number of people who are powerful in this world, that ones that are go-getters, the ones who accomplish things in this world. But God, on the other hand, chooses two. Not a great number, but just two. And they're very weak people, and through them, he started a great nation. The people at Babel wanted to make a name for themselves, but God promises to make Abraham's name great. The workers at Babel followed the wisdom of the world. But Abraham and Sarah, they literally had to trust the word that God had given to them. And, and in Hebrews, long after their lives was over, it was recorded how they were faithful, and, and because of their faith, they obeyed God's word. Babel was bent, built on the energy of the flesh, and the ingenuity of the mind, and was motivated by pride. But the nation Israel was built upon God's grace and God's power in spite of human weaknesses and failures. And ladies and gentlemen, today we live in a very confused world. Babel is still all around us. But God has his faithful remnants. The people like Abram that he called out of Ur of the Chaldees, he may be calling you today out of more to turn away from your own thoughts, your own ways, and to hear his word, his great word, and be able to respond to his grace by your faith. Because he's looking for a remnant of people out of this world today who will follow him by faith in obedience to his word and keep their eyes on eternity, not just on the earthly things of life, but on eternity. So I would ask you today, are you following the ways of the world? Getting involved with the plans, and trying to make something of yourself, or at least attach yourself to someone who is successful. 
Are you trying to make a name for yourself? Or have you decided to be like Abram and hear the call of God and become a part of a remnant, a small group of people that God has chosen out? You remember as Jesus walked with the disciples, he called out 12 men to walk with him. He didn't have hundreds of people that he wanted to build the church. As a matter of fact, in that 12, he even said to Peter, the kind of faith that you have, that's the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. Are you a part of that remnant who God will take out of the world and will you allow him to use you to make his name great? That's Genesis 1, chapter 1 through 11 in four great events. Creation, the fall of man, the flood of Noah, and the rebellion at Babel. That gets us halfway through the mountain peaks of what we're looking at in Genesis. I hope you'll continue to walk on through this great book as we look from Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50 in the days to come, in the podcast to come. And if you have any questions or comments that you would like to uh, get to me, you can email those to me at mike at risen.church. And risen is spelled R-I-Z-E-N. I would love to hear from you, and I would answer you back if you take the time to make a question. Thank you for listening today, and may God bless you.